Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, and this is the Catholic Podcast, where we try to prepare you a little better for the Gospel reading that you're going to hear at Mass today. So you can listen to this podcast before Mass, hopefully, if you can, uh, to help get a better feel for what's really going on in the reading. And today we're going to look at a longer passage, usually the ones in Luke are quite short, uh, but this is a bit of a longer one, so we'll get into it. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him in pairs to all the towns and places that he himself was to visit. He said to them, The harvest is rich, but the laborers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to his harvest. Start off now, but remember, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Carry no purse, no haversack, no sandals. Salute no one on the road. Whatever house you go into, let your first words be, Peace to this house. And if a man of peace lives there, your peace will go and rest on him. If not, it will come back to you. Stay in the same house, taking what food and drink they have to offer, for the labourer deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. Whenever you go into a town where they make you welcome, eat what is set before you. Cure those in it who are sick, and say, The kingdom of God is very near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not make you welcome, go out into its streets and say, We wipe off the very dust of your town that clings to our feet, and leave it with you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is very near. I tell you, on that day it will not go as hard with Sodom as with that town. So what's the context of this really interesting passage? So Jesus has just started to move towards Jerusalem, so it's actually getting pretty close to the end of Jesus' ministry. And we're in the part of Luke's gospel that's often called the ministry to Judea and Perea. The episode we're looking at here is often called the appointment of the 70. So we're going to see here Jesus appoint 70 disciples. And this is only found in Luke. The other Gospels uh, record Jesus' instructions to the apostles. And we've already had that in Luke as well. But this is an additional story that's only in Luke where he gives further instructions to an additional group of disciples. So starting at verse 1, it says, The Lord appointed 72 others. Now, remember, Jesus has already commissioned the 12 apostles to go into the towns. That's already happened in chapter 9. And Jesus now commissions an additional 72 disciples, so more than just his apostles. These are some of his full-time followers who have been following him around for quite a while, and he now feels that they are ready to go out on mission. Now, how many of them are there? You've probably already heard me say a couple of times two different figures. Some manuscripts say that there are 70 disciples here, and some manuscripts say that there are 72 disciples. There's actually um, conflicting records of what Jesus said here. Was it 70 or 72? And there's a reason for that. If we say the correct translation is 70, then Jesus is deliberately patenting his missionary effort here on Moses. There's an episode in Moses' life, in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses commands 70 elders to be prophets in Israel, and they basically help him lead Israel at that time. So Moses has 70 helpers. 
And then the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus, that's kind of like the Jewish council, that was also made up of 70 members, so 70 plus the high priest. And so perhaps this is a this idea of 70 is a recurring theme in the Bible, and it's something that Jesus is continuing to use. So he's setting up 70 of his own disciples. It's really interesting, isn't it, how God continues to use this same pattern of 70 helpers. Now, it's also possible that the 70 disciples here alludes to an even earlier reference in the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 10, that's around the time of the Tower of Babel, there are 70 nations of the ancient world listed. So there's Israel plus 70 other nations. And in Genesis chapter 10, it depicts those 70 nations as representing the whole world. There are some versions of Genesis 10, some Hebrew versions, which actually read 72 nations. There's 72 in that list. So the ministry of the 70 disciples here in Luke could deliberately represent the church's mission to the nations. So in this sense, then, perhaps the mission of the 12, which has already happened earlier, was deliberately meant to represent the mission to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, whereas now the mission of the 70 disciples represents the mission to the Gentiles. That would certainly fit with the pattern that's set up in Genesis chapter 10. And that would also make sense because if you think about the re- the region they're traveling in at the moment, they're going from Judea to Galilee, and that path would include lots of Gentile people, uh, which is really interesting. So Jesus is sending these 70 or 72 disciples into a region which is going to have largely non-Jewish people, whereas when he sent the 12 apostles out earlier, they basically went to Jewish towns. So that pattern does seem to fit, and we also get an explanation there of why some manuscripts of Luke say 72 and some say 70, because if it's being patterned on Genesis chapter 10, well, Genesis chapter 10 has two different textual variations. Some have 70 and some have 72 nations. So uh, certainly Luke and perhaps the scribes who were uh, working with Luke clearly perceived uh, that there's a reference here to Genesis chapter 10. So that's some interesting textual background. The preaching of the gospel, which is what the 72 are going to do to all nations, that's a key focus all the way through Luke. Luke is constantly emphasizing that Jesus has come to bring the gospel to everyone. In fact, the very last command Jesus gives his apostles in Luke is preach the gospel to all nations. You see that in chapter 24, verse 47. And then, of course, they begin to do that in the book of Acts. So Jesus sends out the 72 ahead of him. So they're going to go to towns which Jesus himself is planning to come to. That's really interesting, isn't it? From this, we learn that Jesus goes to many small towns at some point, and we never get to hear about it. There's a whole lot of things Jesus does, a whole lot of places Jesus goes to that we know that he went to, but we don't have it recorded in the Gospels. And that's important. That's something we can learn from this passage. So these 72, though, are going to be messengers that go into the towns and prepare the towns for the arrival of Jesus. So it's kind of like the second missionary missionary tour. Interestingly, the same Greek word is used for the mission of John the Baptist. It says that he was sent before the face of Jesus. We saw that in chapter 7. The same Greek word is used here. These 72 are being sent before the face of Jesus. So they're kind of continuing what John the Baptist was doing, preparing people for the full arrival of the kingdom in Jesus. And he sends them out in pairs or two by two. Why does he send them in pairs? Well, there's lots of different and good answers here. It could be that the disciples are more likely to be productive when they have the support of another person. Uh, 
Maybe it helps avoid the dangers of discouragement and temptation. Maybe it could be that they can cover more ground if there's more groups. If they had groups of three, well, then there'd be less groups. So therefore, they wouldn't be able to get to as many places. So it appears that from Jesus' perspective at this time, having them go out in pairs is the ideal number for the preaching group. Other scholars think the reason he uses twos is because he wants there to be an element of establishing a matter by two witnesses. It was an Old Testament principle that if you wanted to make a case, there needed to be at least one other witness. And we know that the early church continued to send them out in pairs. If you look at Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 15, continually the apostles are going out in pairs. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, The harvest is rich, but the laborers are few. This is an agricultural metaphor that they would have been quite familiar with. The idea here is that there's lots of people ready to enter and progress in the kingdom of God, but there's not enough workers of the kingdom or leaders to help people get into the kingdom. So the harvest is ripe, but there's not enough workers uh, to make the harvest work. That certainly recalls the parable of the sower. Remember in the parable of the sower, there's a hundredfold yield from the good group of crop. So it's like a miraculously yield. And in fact, a similar metaphor is used in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 27, it depicts the restoration of Israel from exile using this similar language of a harvest. So Luke is probably, in fact, Jesus is probably tapping into this Old Testament background of people are ready for God, the harvest is ready, but we need more people to make it work. So he's kind of saying we need more disciples, basically. So he says to his disciples here, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to his harvest. So basically, he's instructing his current disciples to keep praying for more converts, particularly more leaders who can go out and preach the gospel. And a lot of scholars have pointed out here that when he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, and that's a reference to God, it's interesting because Jesus often refers to himself as Lord. So maybe this is a subtle hint uh, of his own divinity, perhaps. Verse 3, Jesus says, start off now or go on your way. So he's about to send them out, but first he's going to give them some quite specific instructions on what to do in those towns. He says, remember, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Quite a famous phrase, and you'll often hear that used today in different contexts. In this context, think about what a wolf would have represented in first century Judaism. If you're a lamb amongst wolves, you're in real trouble. So it's an image of vulnerability and helplessness before fierce attackers. Jesus here is teaching the disciples that they're going to be surrounded by people who are hostile to the gospel and who may want to harm them because of their message. So they're going to go into these towns and Jesus is warning them that they're going to be surrounded by people who don't like them and they're going to be in danger. This phrase might actually recall an Old Testament passage in Sirach chapter 13, verse 17, and that says, Is a wolf ever allied with a lamb? So the sinner with the righteous. That's an interesting background, isn't it? So he's giving them a warning, saying, Watch out, people are going to want to get you. And Jesus is now going to give those disciples a list of things that they can't acquire for themselves before going. And it's a pretty radical list here, because the things he's going to list would be things that they would normally take on a journey in Israel. But Jesus wants them to have poverty on this journey. He wants to teach them that God will provide. And this section is pretty similar to the instructions he's already given the 12 apostles. 
Now, in Matthew's version of this, the Greek suggests that Jesus is prohibiting them from acquiring a staff before or acquiring things before they go. Whereas the Greek in our version, in Luke's version, suggests that Jesus wants the disciples to take what they already have and go. So some scholars think that when we put the Gospels together here, the list of things he's about to provide, Jesus is not saying you can't take these at all, but he's saying don't go and buy one of these. Just leave straight away with what you already have. That seems to be the best way to understand this list. So he first says to them, carry no purse. So Jesus here wants them to have poverty on this journey. He wants them to trust in God. And that would demonstrate to the villagers that they are preaching the gospel genuinely. They're not doing it out of a desire for worldly gain. And we know that Peter later recognizes this principle. He learns from it because he says in the book of Acts, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. He says that to the man who can't walk and he heals him. And so the first thing Jesus says is, you can't take any money. And then he says to them, you can't take a haversack, which just means bag. So that means the disciples can't accept goods from other people either. He then says, you cannot take sandals. Now, this is a tip off that Jesus probably is saying you can't take extra sandals because it's very hard to imagine them being able to do the journey at all if they don't have any sandals. So he probably is telling them they can't take a second pair of sandals. They would need sandals to walk on the difficult roads of Israel. He then says this curious phrase, salute no one on the road. So he tells the disciples that as they go from town to town, they shouldn't stop and talk to people. The urgency of the mission allows for no distraction or delays, especially since in that culture, they wouldn't just say hello and keep walking. They would have quite elaborate greeting rituals, and Jesus says there's no time for that. Interestingly, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha gives similar instructions to his servants when he sends them out on a mission. He says, don't greet anyone on the way. So there is a precedent for this. Verse 5, Jesus says, whatever house you go into, now it's important to recognize he's not telling them to do door-to-door evangelizing. Probably what they would have done is preached in the synagogues and the town squares of the towns, and then hopefully someone would invite them into their house. Whenever they do go into a house, Jesus says, let your first words be peace to this house. Now, peace, of course, the Hebrew word for that is shalom. That's a traditional Jewish greeting. You would often say peace when you arrived at someone's house. But the context here suggests that Jesus is talking about giving them a special kind of peace. In fact, it's like a blessing. He's basically saying to the disciples, when you arrive in the house, bless the house. And it's a special kind of blessing that Jesus gives them as a result of the authority he's given them. And this idea of bringing peace on a house, it's actually associated with the arrival of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. So Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 there's this idea that when the kingdom comes, peace will descend on people's houses. So there is kind of a, um, a kingdom aspect of them giving a peace blessing on the houses. Jesus himself pronounces peace several times towards the end of his ministry. Remember when he appears to the apostles, he says, peace be with you. And it's something he actually says quite a bit towards the end of his life. So peace is something that Jesus has come to bring those who are open to the kingdom. Verse 6, if a man of peace lives there, your peace will go and rest on him. This is interesting what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that if you bring the blessing into a person's house and it turns out that there is a man of peace that lives there or someone who is peaceful, 
then that peaceful person is obviously open to the kingdom and they're going to receive a special blessing. And that will allow the disciples to use their house as a base of ministry. Matthew's version of this says, if the house is worthy. So it's a very interesting eschatological thing here. He's saying, go into houses, pronounce peace. And then if the house is worthy, if the people in there are open to the kingdom, the peace will rest on them. But if they're not open, then the peace won't rest on them. In fact, that's exactly what he says here. He says, if not, it will come back to you. So if no one in the house is open to the kingdom, the blessing won't be received by the house. Interesting, isn't it? That even though they're giving the same blessing, it's only received by those who are open to it. And that's an important principle in Catholic teaching about sacramental theology. Typically, uh, we understand that the sacraments and sacramentals only work to the extent that the person is open to God's grace. Verse 7, Jesus says, Stay in the house, taking what food and drink they have to offer. So he tells the disciples that they should be content with whatever house invites them in, not to be picky, and just eat whatever they put in front of you. And then he has this phrase, for the labourer deserves his wages. The meaning here appears to be, he's telling his disciples that when they go into the towns, people are going to provide them with food and necessities. So the ministers of the gospel will be supported by the believing community. That's going to allow the disciples to focus completely on the apostolic work without having to worry about where food is going to come from. The Old Testament context for this idea of providing food for the leadership of the church, it's actually in Numbers 18 verse 8. The Levites, who were like the people who ministered at the tent of meeting, they received recompense for their labor uh, from the community. And then later in the New Testament, we see Paul using a similar principle. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 18 and Romans 15 verse 16, Paul seems to be teaching that the disciples, those who are preaching the kingdom of God, are carrying out a priestly service when they preach the gospel. And therefore, people should support them with food and money, much like they did for the priests in the Old Testament. So it's an interesting connection there. Jesus says, do not move from house to house. So he tells the disciples they should be content with whatever house invites them in and they shouldn't be worried about unnecessary distractions. It would also ensure an upright intention because he doesn't want the disciples to appear as though they are pandering to the wealthy. Verse 8, whenever you go into a town and they make you welcome, or more literally, they receive you, eat what is set before you. So he's telling the disciples they can't be picky even in terms of food and in terms of dietary laws. Now, that's important. We might have miss, we might miss this when we read it. But think about it. They're likely to enter Samaritan and Gentile areas here. The food customs of those areas are going to be quite different from Jewish customs. Jesus says, normally that would not be okay, but in this case, given the urgency of the mission, eat whatever they put before you, because this mission is about God and his kingdom. It's not about them. They can't afford to be picky. That actually sets a precedent for a future situation in the early church. Remember, there's a lot of discussion in the early church about how to deal with the ritual laws and how to eat with Gentiles. And Paul will later say, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal, eat what is set before you. That's in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 27. So Paul appears to be tapping into this early precedent that Jesus himself sets up. When you're preaching the gospel, eat whatever is set before you, even if it goes against the dietary laws. Verse 9, Jesus says, cure those in the town who are sick. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because previously, he's only given this command to the apostles. But now we learn 
He expects the 72 disciples to heal as well, cure those who are sick. So Jesus is clearly giving a special authority to the 72 disciples as well that allows them to cure the sick. These are probably temporary gifts, though, that he's given the 72, because these 72 disciples, most of them, didn't become priests in the future. They didn't become leaders of the church. So it works a little differently than the gifts that were given to the apostles. Probably just temporary for the short ministry they're about to go on. Mark's version of this tells us that they used oil as part of their healing. So we see here a prefiguring of the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Jesus goes on. He says, In the town, say, The kingdom of God is very near to you. Or, a better translation of this would be, say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus says that when they go into the towns, the disciples should say to the towns, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So through the preaching of the disciples themselves, the kingdom of God is being brought to the town. Matthew's version of this says, say to the towns, the kingdom of God is close at hand. And that's an interesting phrase. So the teaching here is that At the time this is all happening, the kingdom of God is just beginning through the preaching of Jesus and the disciples. It hasn't yet reached its fullness, and it doesn't yet reach its fullness until the end of time. But still, it's appropriate to say, because Jesus has begun the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the kingdom they've been waiting for, and Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. So that should be joyful news to the town. The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached and that Jesus preached as well. And there's a lot more we could say about the kingdom. We talk about it more in our episodes on the Gospel of Matthew. Notice what the disciples are called to preach in the towns. They have to preach the kingdom of God. They're not supposed to preach, say the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. That's not what they're being sent to preach. They're being sent to preach the fullness of the kingdom of God. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that that's something I like to emphasize. Whenever Jesus sends the apostles or disciples out on mission, he gives them very specific instructions to preach the totality of the kingdom of God. And we should remember that. Verse 10, Jesus says, Whenever you enter a town and they do not make you welcome, or they do not receive you, and we're talking here about the township as a whole, Jesus says, go out into its streets and say... Now, the fact that they go out into the streets of the town... That shows that they're doing a symbolic act of judgment against the whole town. He says, wipe off the, we wipe off the very dust of your town that clings to our feet and leave it with you. More literally, you can just translate that as we wipe off against you. So this would be a symbolic action that the whole town could see the disciples do as they leave. To the Jews, this idea of wiping dust off your feet was a symbolic gesture of repudiation and judgment. In fact, whenever a Jew came back into Israel after being in Gentile territory, they would shake the dust off their feet. They would literally do that. And it kind of symbolizes even your dust is not worthy to be on us. So it's it's really quite a clear symbol of rejection. And in this context, when the disciples do it in the towns they visit, it's supposed to indicate we do not approve of this place. And it signifies judgment for rejecting the gospel. Probably what that means is the towns that get this symbolic action done to them, they have forfeited Jesus' invitation to eternal life unless they repent. And indeed, Jesus is going to go on just after this to condemn certain towns for the way they've rejected the gospel. And Jesus says, Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is very near. 
Now, the commas here and the apostrophes make it a little unclear, but this is something that the disciples are supposed to say when they reject a town. So as they wipe the dust off their feet, they then should say to the town, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. That's something they should say to the town just before they leave. The disciples have come to preach the kingdom of God to the towns, but these are towns that are rejecting the kingdom of God. So therefore, the town should expect to receive a harsh judgment on judgment day. Notice the language here. It's kind of a warning, isn't it? Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. So the message of the kingdom of God is good news for those who accept it, but bad news for those who reject it. And that's the case all through the New Testament and even till today. That's quite a strong authority he's giving the disciples, isn't it? He's giving them the authority to shake the dust off their feet for certain towns and effectively to pronounce a warning that that town is condemned unless it repents. Jesus would later say about the apostles in particular, he who hears you, hears me. So the people's response to his commissioned disciples counts as a response to Jesus as well. The last thing Jesus says here in verse 12 is this, I tell you on that day, it will not go as hard with Sodom as with that town. So that day refers to the day of judgment. And you can translate this phrase this way, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. That's quite a strong statement. Think about what happened to Sodom. Jesus here teaches that the towns in his own time will receive a harsher judgment on judgment day if they reject him, a harsher judgment even than what Sodom and Gomorrah receive for their lack of hospitality. Remember early in Genesis when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, physically destroyed by God, because they refuse to accept his messengers. So there's an interesting connection here, isn't there? He says that the towns in his own time will receive an even harsher punishment because they rejected his messengers. That's how important the kingdom of God is. The whole Old Testament was pointing towards the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom, and the Jews were accountable to know that it was coming. If they reject the kingdom of God when it finally does come, via the disciples' preaching, then really they have no excuse. It's out of their willful ignorance. And therefore, they're going to receive a harsh judgment. With greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. That should serve as a sober warning to us, because we have even more information than the towns in Jesus' time did. So we could potentially receive a harsher judgment if we continually refuse the kingdom. And that's a legitimate application from this text. Now, there's a bit more to this speech, um, but it's not in today's reading. You can hear that on Friday of week 26 in ordinary time. And that might be tomorrow for you, depending on when you're listening. So Jesus is going to finish off his speech. So a longer text today, but hopefully you can see there's a lot of interesting stuff here. He says to the 70 disciples. And it's even fascinating the way that he deliberately, Jesus deliberately patterns the 70 on other Old Testament precedents of having 70 leaders of the Old Testament church. Let's now turn to the catechism and see what the references are to today's passage. There's a few brief references. So paragraph 765 is about the church. It says the 12 and the other disciples share in Christ's mission and his power, but also in his lot. And then the paragraph goes on from there. So there's a brief reference to Jesus' other disciples, as we see in today's passage. Paragraph 2611, this is in the section about Jesus teaches us how to pray. The prayer of faith consists not only in saying, Lord, Lord, but in disposing the heart to do the will of the Father. 
Jesus calls his disciples to bring into their prayer this concern for cooperating with the divine plan. And there's a brief reference here to the mission that the 70 were sent out on. They are called to cooperate in the divine plan, as are the towns. Paragraph 2122. This is a really interesting application. This is in the section about irreligion as a sin that you can commit, the sin of irreligion. It says, The minister should ask nothing for the administration of the sacraments beyond the offerings defined by the competent authority, always being careful that the needy are not deprived of the help of the sacraments because of their poverty. The competent authority determines these offerings in accordance with the principle that the Christian people ought to contribute to the support of the church's ministers. The labourer deserves his food. So this paragraph teaches two things. It says, firstly, the ministers of the Catholic Church cannot charge for the sacraments because that will be that will come under irreligion and that would not be fair to poorer people. But then the second thing it says is Christians and Catholics in particular have a duty to support their uh, to support the ministers so that the ministers can carry out uh, the sacraments. So Christians have an obligation to financially support their ministers, which of course is a link to what Jesus says in this passage about the laborer deserves his food. In fact, it quotes from that. So that's a really interesting application there. Well, thank you for listening to this longer passage today. I hope you learned something new. If you have, please share it around. We'll continue to look at the Gospel of Luke in the coming days.